Hiya, Duncan Green here with the weekly roundup of posts on From Poverty to Power. And the exciting news from me is that I'm on holiday next week. Holidays, remember holidays? Um, okay, we're only walking in Kent and it'll probably rain, but even so, um, I'm just dying to get out of London for the first time in months and months. So that's all very exciting. So I'll do this uh, roundup and then maybe a links I liked if I've got enough stuff and then I'm heading off and we may have a little holiday on the blog. So we started off this week with the uh, traditional links I liked. Um, there's some smart thinking on COVID responses, some nice, a nice piece from the Centre for Global Development on how do you design COVID responses for low-income countries and contexts rather than just trying to import lockdown and track and trace and all the things that have been developed uh, in some cases, not in all, uh, in rich countries, which I thought was really interesting. Also, lots of really good stuff on Black Lives Matter. I particularly liked Hannah Ryder's work. She's taken the kind of best bits from different sectors and put them together as a blueprint for how the development sector can get serious about anti-racism, which I think is really good. And Graham Teskey, who is um, an ex-DFID person who's been one of the sort of big thinkers and pioneers on governance and the whole thinking and working politically movement um, and he took a look at the merger between DFID and the foreign office the two that the, in the UK the development ministry has just been folded into the foreign ministry and a lot of the development people are very worried about it as a governance advisor Graham had a particular take on this so he said he was talking about, he was saying, yeah, superficially, governance advisors, because they think about politics and power, should be on the same wavelength as the foreign ministry. So they should be easy to build links. But actually, the foreign ministry don't think they don't think they need to know much. Uh, they think they already know about politics. So he tried to explain the difference in the understanding of politics between governance advisors in development agencies and those in the foreign office. So he said, Governance advisors in development agencies tend to look at politics structurally, how the political substructure affects elite formation, the political settlement and the social contract. We look at so-called deep structures and the underpinning institutions that influence, if not determine, individual and collective behaviour. Foreign affairs colleagues focus more on the immediate here and now of who is doing what with and to who whom and to what end. Foreign affairs staff tend to be more focused on individuals, the powers that be in their networks. So in an ideal world, foreign affairs staff would learn about structures and, and sort of political economy from DFID type people, DFID governance advisors, and governance advisors would really listen to that sort of granular knowledge that foreign affairs people have about who's in charge and who's influencing whom and so on. Doesn't always happen. So that's, that's what uh, Graham wants to watch as the merger takes place to see if that improves. Hold on, quick slip. The second piece was a really nice piece from India. Uh, Priyanka Kosamraju uh, had a really lovely, beautifully written piece uh, introducing uh, a new podcast uh, on local diaries, untold stories of women. Um, and it's uh, just to explain the kind of feel for it, I won't you know, uh, try and uh, recreate it, but the first episode of Local Diaries tells the stories of 10 women who are seeing their hard-won freedoms to work, earn, learn, go out, make friends, love and articulate their views slipping away in the wake of the pandemic and the lockdowns that followed it. So I thought that was a really you know, important take that that all the sort of the gains of the women's movement over the years are at risk now because of uh, of COVID and the lockdown. And they sort of 
uh, flesh that out in the podcast. It's an important piece, I think, there. Next up was a piece from some colleagues at Oxfam, uh, Filippo Artuso, Inigo, Inigo Macias-Aymar and Francisca Maguer, um, on the COVID inequality ratchet. So Oxfam's doing a lot of thinking about the impact of COVID and sort of scanning the evidence and putting together short briefings on different aspects. And this one is on how the pandemic has hit the lives of young women, minority and poor workers the hardest. So it's looking at the evidence for the impact on the labour market of, of COVID. Most of the research they could find was from high income countries, but they found very similar patterns both in high income and low income. So the evidence on high income countries is that young women, ethnic minority, low paid and part time workers are the most affected by hours reduction. So they're getting fewer hours or they're being laid off and they also have fewer chances to work from home. In low and middle income countries, it's similar but slightly different. Vulnerable and precarious workers are the most affected. So we're talking about the informal economy, migrants and those invisible workers in the care economy. And what they ask is, you know, that they set out with enormous number of graphs. If you like graphs, this is the post for you. Um, uh, They set out the evidence and then say, could COVID be the moment when people start to appreciate these other kinds of marginalised workers who are getting hit the hardest? and start to come up with some new kind of social contract for, for people like care economy workers, care workers. So uh, it's a useful summary of what we know so far. Next post was uh, a book which I loved by an author who I think is absolutely amazing. So Yuan Yuan Ang is a Singaporean Chinese scholar based in the US who has written two great books on China. So I loved her first book, which was How China Escaped the Poverty Trap which to me was just the most insightful piece of work I've ever read on, on China. She's now followed it, up, followed it up with another fantastic book, China's Gilded Age, which takes on a massive conundrum, uh, which is, you know, all the political science, the Western political scientists, you know, people like Asimoglu and Robinson, sort of say with great, great conviction, yes, corruption is toxic for growth. You know, you, need, you can't have extractive institutions. And then you say, um, China? And they go, ah, it's just a blip. China will crumble if it doesn't reform, you know. Well, the blip has been going on for 40 years now, while lots of these supposed fantastic Western systems have have crumbled or had very volatile uh, periods. So Yuan Yuan Ang is trying to understand and explain how China's turbocharged economic and social transformation has coincided with massive corruption. No one denies that there's huge levels of corruption in China. Um, and what she does is look at different kinds of corruption and say and, and, and explain that not all corruption is equally damaging. Some kinds of corruption may actually stimulate growth in the short term, but produce serious risks and distortions in the longer term. So she comes up with a nice typology of kinds of corruption. Petty theft is acts of stealing, you know, misuse of public funds, extortion among street level bureaucrats, you know, having to pay to get a certain service. Grand theft refers to the embezzlement or misappropriation of large sums of public monies by political elites who control state finances. Speed money means petty bribes that businesses or citizens pay to get round hurdles and just speed things up. But the crucial one is access money, which is high stakes rewards given extended to by business actors to powerful officials, not just for speed, but to access exclusive valuable privileges, contracts, Um, you know, uh, broadband uh, access, land, those kind of things. 
And she says the key to the link between uh, corruption and growth in China is that China has cracked down on the growth damaging uh, kinds of corruption, but has encouraged access money, which she likens to steroids. Um, access money kind of creates a sort of profit sharing environment where bureaucrats and businesses. Oh, I don't believe it. I'm going to ignore that. Why do I never put my phone on? Do not disturb. There we are. Done. Um, so access money creates profit sharing where um, bureaucrats and businesses are aligned um, uh, and, and can trigger growth. Now, she's very clear that she's not saying corruption is a good thing. Right. But her summary is, first, while corruption is never good, not all forms of corruption are equally bad for the economy, nor do they cause the same kind of harm. And second, the rise of capitalism is accompanied not by the eradication of corruption, but rather by the evolution of the quality of corruption from thuggery and theft to influence peddling. And that's where she gets very interesting because she does she sort of compares this to the US, which has had which had massive levels of corruption during its so-called gilded age in the late 19th century but then morphed into something more like influence peddling, campaign finance, and so on. Um, so she, she's saying, actually, you've got to look at the historical evolution of corruption as, a, as an economy develops. And it reminded me a lot of Harjun Chang's arguments that trade policy is not either, you know, protectionism or liberalization are not either good or bad. It depends and that countries have used protection and then liberalized later in their trajectory. And this is a sort of similar argument on corruption, which I thought was really nice. And then the final post of the week, um, I just I, I copied and sort of cut down because it was quite long. A really nice piece from a, a very good uh, blog called Global Dashboard by Kirsty McNeil, who is the kind of director, supreme advocacy and campaigns person at Save the Children UK. And she wrote a piece called Effective Activism in a Time of Coronavirus. What are we learning six months in? And I liked this because it was asking difficult questions and sort of it was subtle and nuanced and honest and it was a really nice piece. So she has some fairly heretical thoughts. So she's got yeah, some headlines, four headlines. So the first is in a fight between a rewind and a revolution, revolution's going to lose. And she starts, she, she dis there's a, a slogan which has come up a lot during COVID, which was first used in, in the Chilean protests uh, last year. We won't go back to normal when normal was the problem. Well, actually, if you say that, you're saying goodbye to most of the public who are desperate to get back to normal. They're hankering for a return to being able to go out, being able to drive their cars or, you know, travel on uh, transport and see their friends. So if you sort of start shouting that, you know, we want to change everything, you're going to lose touch with those people. She says, strategies which confuse a public appetite to build back better with one to build back completely different just aren't going to attract a big enough base. As one union organiser told me, there's no point asking people to trust you to organise a revolution if you can't get a microwave in the staff canteen. That's point one. Point two. This is kind of quite subtle, this one. Don't mourn organise is the wrong mantra for our times. We need to do both. And when she talks about mourning, she doesn't just mean mourning for the many people who've died, but political mourning for, for lost battles, for places, yeah, for, 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 for defeats. And she worries that people just think if you just organize enough, 
You can reverse everything. You can win everything. And she says, personal agency can be a tremendous source of resilience and optimism in normal times. But it is, however, a recipe for burnout and guilt in these times, the COVID times. We have to accept we can't campaign our way out of a pandemic and we can't always beat overwhelming political odds. That is a tough lesson for people to hear when so much of the activist community thrive on sort of voluntarism. You know, if we want it enough and we are active enough, we can win it. You know, that that awful quote from Margaret Mead, which I really don't like about, you know, change comes about through the determined actions of a small group of people and always has, is a terrible guide for me to understanding when you can win and when you can't. Third argument from Kirsty McNeil, think global, act local has come of age, but we need to buttress it. Not a great expression. I didn't quite see what buttress meant. But what she means is that that there's a sort of interesting bifurcation going on. Support for both local mutual aid efforts and international solidarity is conditional. They're both going on. We instinctively feel the local and the global are the right levels to deal with different elements of the pandemic and its effects. But we want to be sure that everyone is pulling their weight and we're getting enough out of it for what we're willing to put in. So if we want people to move towards more active civic involvement, we need to introduce the idea of political activism as something that sits in service of and not in a separate realm to people's individual moral choices and willingness to muck in locally. So don't, you know, don't say, no, the only thing that matters is this global movement. You've got to you've got to combine the global and the local uh, respectfully and creatively, and then you can get people's attention. And then the final one. An imperfect message that gets heard is better than a perfect one that doesn't. And she says, we've got a lot of money being spent crafting narratives. Narratives is the word that's on everybody's lips in, in act- activism and in, in, in the aid business. But it's crafting narratives that no one is going to hear. It's time to get much more serious about thinking about our routes to market when we embark on inside work and we need to be willing to pay for the distribution as well as the design of the messages. So it's no good just sitting in your ivory tower crafting the perfect narrative if you don't have a realistic way to get that out at scale to millions and millions of people. And that's the bit she's worried about. So I thought that was a really challenging, interesting thoughtful and subtle piece which I think people should read and reflect upon and on that note I'm going on holiday no reflecting for me bye